This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. As most of you know, the word or term Buddha means awakened one. And for many of us, this actually is the goal of our practice, to awaken from the sleep or the dream of ignorance, of delusion. And we each get a glimpse of this every morning when we wake up, you know, either from a deep sleep or a dream state, you know, that moment of awakening, and we feel somewhat more connected, somewhat more in the real world. But the Buddha pointed out that even in this relatively awakened state, we're actually still asleep you know, being caught up in the habit patterns of our minds, the habit patterns of thoughts, of emotions. I'm sure you've noticed over these past days of the retreat how much of the time we're lost in these trains of association, of thoughts, of memories, of plans, of images. What's so interesting, we hop on these trains We don't know that we've hopped on. And we actually have no idea where the train is going. And sometime down the track, it's like we awaken again from being lost. We hop off the train and are again attentive, again aware. So the question for us in our practice and in our lives really is how we can truly wake up. Not just waking up from our nighttime sleep, but waking up from our daytime sleep. Now, what is it that actually will free the mind and the heart? 
So all the various Buddhist traditions actually agree or converge in one understanding of what frees the mind. There are lots of different techniques and lots of different methods and even lots of different metaphysical, philosophical explanations of things. But all the traditions converge in one understanding of the nature of freedom. So in the Pali texts, which are the texts of this tradition, the Buddha said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. And that's the word he used to refer to himself, the Tathagata. So the the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. And someplace else he said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. And these same truths of liberation is expressed also in the Mahayana and the Tibetan traditions. There was a great Indian adept and sage, Tilopa, who in teaching his disciple, Naropa, he said, you are not fettered, you are not bound by appearances. You are fettered, you are bound by attachments. So cut your attachments. It's the same message. So what's been very important in my own practice, and I think for all of us to realize, is that non-clinging shouldn't be thought of as some far-off state. You know, we'll practice 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. And maybe someday I'll experience non-clinging. The great realization is that this is our practice now. That what we're practicing in the moment is non-clinging. And all the teachings you know, of concentration, of mindfulness, of the precepts, you know, of metta, of the Brahma-viharas, all of the teachings really are in the service of this quality of freedom, of non-clinging. As you've noticed, our unfolding experience is continually changing. You know, different sensations. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're unpleasant. The practice of liberation is the same. What's very hard to remember, even after many years of practice, is that we're not practicing for some other better experience. What we're practicing is the mind that is not clinging now. But we get seduced even in the path of our meditation. You know, how often are we sitting or walking, practicing in order for some other better, more wonderful state to arise? And we forget what the essence, what the 
what the very heart of freedom is. Freedom is in the non-grasping mind. So there's a little saying that I made up. It's not in very good English, but it conveys something. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Right? So it's so interesting. You know, how often are we practicing for some experience in the future that we won't cling to? Why not not cling now <laughs> to whatever it is that's arising? So how do we do this? I mean, the message is clear. You know, it's very unambiguous. The Buddha just put it out in a very straightforward way. The question is, how do we accomplish this? How do we practice this non-clinging now? So one way, and this is, this is a very great doorway into not-clinging, is through refining our awareness and our perception of impermanence, of change. Someone, someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, who was a great Japanese Zen master who started the San Francisco Zen Center. And years ago, a collection of his teachings was in a book called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which back in the 60s or 70s was really a Buddhist bestseller, you know, because it just encapsulated so much of his wisdom. So there's a story that someone once asked him, asked Suzuki Roshi, the student, who said, I've been listening to your talks for years, but I just don't understand. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Okay, so this is for us. <laughs> and Suzuki Roshi replied, everything changes. The implication of this statement is enormous. What's so interesting, we all know this. We know it intellectually. We know it conceptually. There's nobody who would argue the point that everything changes. And yet, we haven't integrated that understanding fully in our lives, in the way we're relating to experience. Because if we really knew it, if it was in our bones, then we would not be clinging or attached to anything. We would know that everything is changing. So we have to practice seeing it, you know, and refining our perception of it. You know, as Dara mentioned in you know, her beautiful talk last night, the most basic uh, framework or principle in the Buddhist teachings is that all things, all experience, arises out of conditions. And that the conditions are continually changing. So every aspect of our lives, every part of our experience is arising because the causes and conditions are there for that particular experience to arise. 
But we have to pay attention to the fact that those very causes and conditions which cause something to arise are continually shifting and changing. They're not stable. You know, so many times people have been leading peaceful, seemingly stable lives. You know, and then in a moment, conditions can change. You know, we, we read of, you know, great natural disasters. You know, all the stories, both recent and long-standing, of senseless violence. You know, or accidents. You're going along in a moment. You know, our lives are changed. Or disease. What's so crucial for us to understand is that none of us is exempt from this law of change. You know, we tend to be able to see, oh yeah, it's changing for everybody else, but my life is stable. And this is the great delusion. You know, there's, it's, there's a story in the Mahabharata, which is one of the great Indian classics. And so one of the characters, one wise man, a sage, comments that the most remarkable thing in the world is that we see people dying all around us, and yet we don't think it will happen to us. And of course, again, it's, we know it will intellectually. But do we really get it? Do we really understand the impermanent nature of everything? Conditions are always changing. Another one of my homegrown mantras, which has really served me very well. Uh, <clears throat> anything can happen anytime. You know, we think we know how things are going to unfold. But really, anything can happen anytime. And at first, people might hear that and feel, oh, well, that would make me kind of paranoid, <laughs> you know, and always on the, on the watch for what might happen. But for me, exactly, it's exactly the opposite. It's by recognizing that anything can happen anytime. My heart became a lot less defensive about things happening, you know, as changes occurred, and particularly ones that were unwanted, you know, or unpleasant things. Yes, anything can happen anytime. This is the law. This is the nature of things. So it actually created a sense of ease, you know, created a sense of the acceptance that Dara was speaking about in terms of the first noble truth. So the experience of change and our, our attention to it can also come <clears throat> not only with big dramatic events or changes in our lives, but also just, just in the ordinary, the ordinary experiences that we have. Now, I don't know if some of you have walked on the paths in the woods. The New England woods are amazing. You know, we see miles and miles of these stone walls. And stone foundations, empty foundations of old houses. And it's not hard to imagine kind of the people who lived there, you know, and created those walls and built those houses and 
their lives were as vivid and as compelling to them as our own is to us. And yet, what's left now? The stone walls in the woods. The truth of change, the truth of impermanence is so obvious and so much all around us. There are changes in nature, you know, the changes of weather, the changes in climate, the huge climactic changes that are happening now. We see the changing nature of our relationships. How much suffering have we been involved in because we have some idea that our relationship should stay a certain way? And of course, it's impossible. You know, we're all changing. We're changing. Our partners are changing. All our relationships are changing. You can see the change, again, in a very ordinary way, just in our own bodies and minds. And of course, that's what we're doing here. And in your meditation practice, how many times have you had the experience? I've had, I've had this happen countless times. Well, I would have a sitting, and maybe it would be very calm and concentrated, and my mind was pretty still, and I'd get up. And then I'd come into the next sitting thinking that it'll just pick up from where it left off. And the next sitting might be filled with pain or discomfort or restlessness. Or the other way around, you're going to have a really difficult sitting and come into the next one with a sense of dread. And you sit down, and the mind settles. There are examples of this process of change happening all around us. When we are paying attention carefully, I think I'll interject something here. This, this, is, this is something I usually suggest to talk about at the very beginning of a retreat, but it's not too late. <laughs> There's a meditative disease, and it's called more or less mindful. Right? We were going along through the day, and we're more or less mindful. We're kind of there. You know, we're not totally lost, but we're not really there. We're not there carefully. We're not there with precision. That's the kind of mindfulness we need to cultivate. And that's what can be cultivated so well on a retreat, because you have nothing else to do. You know, there's no excuses. <laughs> it's like your only job is to pay careful attention. <laughs> So watch, just watch, watch what the quality of your mindfulness is through the day. You know, do you find yourself rushing to go from one activity to another? Rushing is a great feedback that your mind is ahead of yourself. You know, we're not settled back in our body. We're not really present. Things are changing not only every week or every day or every hour. Things are actually changing every single moment. Things are disappearing and new things are arising 
moment after moment. And we can see that. And we see it in a simple way. You don't have to be a super yogi to see this. So one experiment you can make, and this is, this is going to be a memory test to see if you can remember this from now till the end of the talk. <laughs> because it's an experiment to make when you leave the hall at the end of the talk. So finish the talk, you know, ring the bell. So just as you leave the hall, <coughs> if you remember, just pay attention moment to moment to all the changing experiences you have simply in getting up from your seat and leaving. You know, all the changes of the body sensations, the changes of what is being seen, the different colors and forms and shape, the different sounds that are going to come and go, you know, as people are leaving, the passing thoughts that are coming through. If you're not in a more or less mindful state, but really in a very attentive state, you will notice just in that short time how many different experiences are arising and passing away. And all of this is ordinary. This is not, you know, this is not some big mystical experience. It's just the nature of things. It's how things are always happening. And even... <clears throat> with something that we think of as unitary. Within each of those experiences, so many different things are happening. Okay, what's just a rose? A sound. We might think, oh yeah, sound arose and passed away. But if we're listening carefully, How many different vibratory elements are within that one sound? How many changes are taking place just within that one sound? And it's the same with each breath. You know, we think, oh, in-breath, out-breath. And after a while, we get bored with it. First, it's interesting that we get bored with it. Would we be bored if somebody were holding our head underwater? We would not be bored with our breath. I mean, each breath is literally sustaining our lives. This is not poetry. <laughs> Every single breath is sustaining our life. Oh, how boring. <laughs> the mind is so amazing. It's because we're not paying careful attention. You know, Fritz Perls, the great psychologist, said boredom is lack of attention. It's when we're half-hearted, when we're not close. And so when we come in close to experience, whether it's listening to a sound or the breath or a step or whatever it is, then the truth of change, the truth of impermanence is so obvious. We begin to see it in such a clear and precise way. It's through the seeing of impermanence on this level and seeing it repeatedly and reflecting on it, you know, keep, really keeping it in mind, this is what loosens 
the grip of clinging and attachment because we see that there's nothing really we can hold on to. So the liberating power of this perception of change was expressed in one very startling uh, teaching of the Buddha. I mean, this is a statement that, if you think about, is really quite shocking. He said, it's better to live a single day seeing the momentary arising and passing of phenomena. Seeing how phenomena experiences arising and passing way very quickly. Better to live a single day seeing this than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So what is that saying about what we value in our lives and what we give energy to in our lives? I mean, that's pretty remarkable. But what the Buddha is pointing to is that the seeing of impermanence on this level is what liberates us. It's not just the accumulation of more experiences or more pleasant things in our lives, which is mostly, to a large extent, what we devote ourselves to. The Buddha is saying it's this seeing of impermanence. That's actually what frees us. So it's worth testing it. You know, it's not something necessarily to believe, but can we practice and test it for ourselves? Well, again, this is from the teachings. The Buddha gave very explicit instructions about this. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and these feelings are arising with every single experience, you know, a sight, a sound, a smell, it's everything we experience with tasting either as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whatever feelings arise, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the passing away, the letting go of those feelings. And here's the key point. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in, the, in this world. Contemplating the impermanence of these feelings of experience. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana, enlightenment. So, I had read that particular teaching many, many times. And I always took it as a description of how things were. And then on one retreat, I read it. And this is why, you know, reading over and over again the teachings, because each time you just get another perspective. But one on one retreat, I read it, and instead of just reading it as a description, I took it as an instruction, an instruction of investigation. Because the Buddha is saying, when we're seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it's not agitated. So I decided to test it out. You know, and just watching for those times when I was seeing impermanence and to notice whether the mind is clinging. So we'll do that right now. You know, so as I ring the bell, this is not hard to do. Just listen. 
and see if you can become aware, which again is really simple, of just the impermanent nature of the sound, you know, the flow-like nature. And as you're hearing the sound and are aware of its impermanence, its change, just turn the attention and see in those moments whether the mind is clinging or not. Okay, so you just, we're going to test the Buddha and see if he was right. It's actually impossible to cling when, when, you, when you are right in the flow of the changes. So then I took it a step further. So he said, okay, when we see impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it's not agitated. So is that true? Let's try again. Seeing impermanence. No clinging. In no clinging, is there agitation? No. That the mind, the mind settles easily into this place of non-agitation. And then is the great conclusion. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. It's like, this is the shortcut. You know, it's all right here in a few simple, a few simple steps. Seeing impermanence, mind doesn't cling. When not cling, mind is not agitated. Not agitated nibbana. <laughs> so again, the, the <laughs> but we have to see it. We have to see it in ourselves, and it's not hard to do. That's the point. We just have to take it from being Buddhist philosophy to an instruction for how we can look, how we can experience, and it's very simple. And we can also play in the kind of reverse way. You know, when we feel that we are agitated, you know, when we're going through a sitting or just in our day when the mind is agitated, so that could be a feedback for us to say, okay, the mind is agitated, that means that I'm clinging to something. Because if the mind's not clinging, it's not agitated. So if it is agitated, it means we're clinging. So instead of the agitation being a problem, you know, or something we struggle with, rather it's a feedback and saying, okay, that's it's kind of a wake-up call. Mind is agitated, take a look. You know, are we clinging to some thought, to some feeling, to some opinion, to whatever? And that's how we actually, over time, free ourselves from the patterns of clinging and attachment. In case we're still missing it, in case we still haven't quite honed in, as a great help to us, the Buddha pointed out those areas where we habitually do cling. Right? So in case there's some confusion about, okay, well, where, where am I going to find this clinging? Uh, this, 
<laughs> and this is what I love about the teachings. It, you know, it's, he's, it's just very explicit. It's, He talked about different areas of clinging, which most people get involved in in one way or another. And of course, the first and most obvious is the clinging to sense pleasures. You know, we enjoy them. We like them. We want them to continue. We devote a lot of our lives to the experience of acquiring sense pleasures. You know, good food and nice feelings in the body and... Of course, the problem is that these sense pleasures, while there's nothing wrong with sense pleasures, they don't last. So they're not going to actually provide a lasting peace. So it's just a question of looking to see, are we getting agitated in our relationship to sense pleasures through clinging? Or can we simply be in our lives, enjoy them when they're present, but without devoting our lives to the acquisition of them? But, but sense desires, th- this is not a trivial thing. You know, when Dara spoke of the second noble truth being craving, I mean, that, that understanding itself is quite extraordinary. Of all the things that the Buddha could have said was the cause of suffering, craving. Of all the kind of all the mind states, it's that craving, it's that desire, and one of the things we desire is sense pleasures. I had a ridiculous experience of this, and I've told this story over the years many times, and it happened years ago, but it was so ridiculous that it stayed with me. So I'd been in India for a couple of years. This is many years ago, you know, forty-five years ago or so. I was very, I was young, enthusiastic about my practice, really into it. And I'd been there long enough so that my mind had developed some degree of concentration and and stillness and, you know, and at different times, you know, I would be having a sitting, it's that kind of sitting where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. (laughs) You know, so I'm sitting there, okay, just waiting for the big moment. And then we were staying in the, in the Burmese temple in Bodh Gaya, uh, just the few Westerners who were practicing there. And it was, conditions were very basic, you know, and the food was very basic. And so in the evening, they served just a couple of japati and uh, two, two really small bananas, you know, like, like that big, you know. So I'm sitting, about to get enlightened. (laughs) The tea bell rings. And I watched my mind. Enlightenment, banana. (laughs) Enlightenment or banana. (laughs) And what's so amazing is that I got up for the banana. So craving, (laughs) don't underestimate (laughs) the force of this in the mind. It goes really deep. (laughs) 
you know, in addition to sense pleasures, kind of in a more refined level, we also get attached and cling to pleasant meditative states. You know, at first we go, most people go through a lot of difficulty and struggle. And, but at a certain point, you know, the body gets more easeful and the mind can get concentrated. And we can experience many deeply pleasant meditative states of calm, of peace, of joy, of lightness, lots of beautiful states. Very easy to start practicing for them. You know, we become attached to them. And there's a very interesting uh, description at a particular place in our practice. All of the different factors of enlightenment, factors of awakening, like mindfulness and rapture and tranquility and all of the really beautiful things that we're practicing for, at a particular stage in practice, they are called corruptions of insight. Not because the states themselves are bad, but it's at that particular point in practice we're so enamored of them that we get attached to the states. And we forget about liberation through non-clinging. Liberation is not in those states. Liberation is in the mind that doesn't cling. So that's another arena to pay attention to. There's a Thai laywoman in the last century who, she was probably the most famous, uh, certainly lay teacher in Thailand of the last century, and very unusual, you know, in that culture for a lay woman to be a teacher. Not usual, you know, because there's a big monastic hierarchy. But she was this extraordinary woman who. Um, just created a very small hermitage and still as a lay person, uh, but devoted a life to practice. Her name was Upasaka Ki. And there's a book of her teachings called Pure and Simple, which is a wonderful book. If at some point you have a chance to read it, the, the teachings are powerfully direct and they're all about freedom. They're all about liberation. I just want to read one small part. She said, if you want to see the real essence of the Dhamma, we have to look deeply, profoundly. Then it's simply a matter of letting go all along the way. The theme of non-clinging covers everything from beginning to end. So the whole book is really just an elaboration of that. Have to look deeply and profoundly not more or less mindfully, you know, really, really connected in each moment, seeing the impermanence, the flow, then it's simply a matter of letting go all along the way. The theme of non-clinging covers everything from beginning to end. So we want to take this in, you know, because this can really inform our understanding of the teachings and of our own practice. So attachment to sense pleasures or to meditative pleasures. 
we can become attached and often do to our views and opinions about things. I have another little mantra. Certainty is not an indication of truth. Just because we have an opinion and are certain about it, the certainty doesn't make it true. And so it's really interesting, just in as we examine our own minds and in listening to other people, especially in this election year, <laughs> to see the difference between, and especially in ourselves, an opinion and what we really know. Because it's quite amazing how we can be attached to an opinion about things we know nothing about. But it doesn't stop us from having an opinion. So it's just to, it's just to see that. It, it, it's not an insignificant thing. You know? And even about things we really do know, you know where, where we really do have some experience of it, I find that it's really helpful, even with that, just to keep an open mind, not to not to be attached even to what we might really feel we do know. Because if we're not attached to it, then it just leaves us open to further discovery or different perspectives. It kind of allows our life to unfold. So there's attachment to sense pleasures, to meditative pleasures, attachment to views and opinions. The deepest attachment we have and the source really, the say the ultimate source or a deep source of so much suffering in the world is attachment to the idea, the concept of self, of I. And of course, this is probably the most difficult aspect of the Buddhist teachings to understand. It's so counterintuitive, you know, because we live our lives revolving about, centered in the sense of ourselves as if there's some being, some reference point to whom all experience is happening. You know, I'm the one who's hearing, and I'm the one who's seeing, and I'm the one who's thinking. So our whole life revolves around this mental construct of the reference point of self, of I. So this takes a lot of just sitting with it. First, you know, listening and hearing about it because it's difficult to understand. But the meditation practice and our Dharma practice, we can begin to get some glimpses of what this might mean. You know, and this is so fundamental to the Buddhist teaching. This constructed reference point of self, of I, happens when we are not paying careful attention to the composite, impermanent nature of experience. And so what happens is, in this flow of rapidly changing phenomena, in the mind, in the body, when we're not paying careful attention, as Upasakaki said, profound attention in this rapid flow of phenomena, of physical, mental experience, 
we identify with various aspects of that experience just unconsciously. We identify with it as being self. So I'll just give you examples of how we do this. And we do it most of the time. Most of us are very identified with our bodies. You know, who am I? We wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, yeah, that's me. You know, we're taking the body to be self. There was once an advertisement in the New York Times, the T-shirt that said, me, me, me. So I want to do an IMS T-shirt, not me, not me, not me. (laughs) (laughs) But especially these days with medical technology, we have, a, we have a whole window into a different perspective. Uh, I had a friend who had laparoscopic surgery for some kind of, it was a benign tumor. And, and so they go in and you know, there's a little video camera. It's amazing how they do it. And after the surgery, she actually came out with the video. <laughs> and she had no interest in looking at it, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> And it was so amazing. It was like a journey without going to an autopsy. You know, it was, it was like being on the inside of the body and you saw the organs and the blood and everything, everything that's in there. And from that view, you know, would you identify with your liver? Yeah, the liver is me. Or the gallbladder, yeah, that's who I am. I'm the gallbladder. <laughs> No, I, when you see when you see what's actually in there, uh, not likely we identify with it. But we wrap it all nicely in skin. You know, we make this nice package, and then we get attached. Get attached to this body. Get very attached to other people's bodies because we're not seeing deeply. So that's one thing we can begin to explore. What this how we're creating the sense of self through identification with this body by not really understanding or seeing what the body actually is. We create a sense of self when we're lost in and identified with thoughts. You know, just in these last days, countless hours, you know, being just being carried away. Thought trains. I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging. We identify with the thought. The thought itself is not a problem. It's just it's like a little bubble in the mind. The thought, my first teacher, Manindraji, used to say, the thought is the thinker. It's not that there's someone who's having the thought. The thought is a mental phenomenon rising out of conditions. It does its thing, which is to think, and then passes away. But we claim it because we're not paying attention. We're not seeing its impermanent nature. The thoughts come in and unconsciously we become identified with the thought and we create the sense of self in that. We create the sense of self when we're identified with the different emotions that arise. With all the stories we make up about ourselves. No, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm enthusiastic, I'm depressed. The I is extra. All of these emotions are conditions. 
that experiences arising out of causes and conditions, just like cloud formations. Conditions come together, the cloud forms. The conditions change, the clouds dissolve. Conditions come together internally, externally, and emotion arises. Conditions change, the emotion passes. But because we're not seeing that clearly, you know, how often are we identified in and lost in and sometimes overwhelmed by the emotions? Because we think, yes, this is me, this is who I am. So not only do we go, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm happy, we then create an even bigger structure. I'm an angry person or I'm a fearful person or I'm a happy person. So we're just building a superstructure of self on top of momentary changing conditions. So we can see this, we can observe this, you know, as we're just watching our own process. The most subtle level of identification, the, mind, the, the one that's the hardest to see in terms of how we create and feed and strengthen the sense of self is our identification with consciousness, with awareness itself. We may see all these other experiences are changing. Yeah, the, you know, the body we may see is changing, and even as we get more skilled, we see thoughts and emotions as changing. But I'm the one who's knowing it all. Right? And in that identification with the knowing, we create that separate sense of the witness, the observer of experience, apart from experience. So here we really need uh, a lot of interest, you know, and, and practice to begin to understand the very nature and process of consciousness itself. You know, what is knowing? This, this is a great mystery. Before I just touch on a couple of ways that we might cut through this identification with knowing, I just want to emphasize that in understanding on a deeper and deeper level that the sense of self or the, the, that self is a construct, it doesn't mean in that realization or understanding, as we understand selflessness, poof, and then we disappear somehow. <laughs> you know, this is some kind of magic. No, on a conventional level, we are operating from that space. I'm speaking to you and I buy clothes that fit me, not fit you. And there's the understanding. You know, on the conventional level, we're using this concept. So there's no problem with that. It was expressed very well by a Tibetan teacher when he was asked about this. He said, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. You are real, but you think you're really real. <laughs> you exaggerate it. <laughs> so I love that. 
on the convention, we are real. And do we, you know, we live our lives in that place. And that's fine. But we want to get to that place of understanding that we're not really real. That underneath all of that, there's no substantial self-existing thing that's kind of living inside. So this is profound. You know, this is, this is a revolutionary way of understanding life and who we are. And that's why the Buddha's enlightenment was such an extraordinary, in the cultures of awakening, I mean, it was an extraordinary realization. Okay, so how can we cut through this most subtle identification with knowing? So we let go, the, let go of the sense of being the knower. Right, the observer. One technique which I worked with in my practice, which I found very effective, was just changing the way I was languaging experience to myself. So just as an example, usually in the way we language experience, in English, grammatically, we're using the active voice. I'm walking, I'm thinking, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. So there's a subject, a verb, you know, an object. So in my practice, and especially in the walking, I started reframing it in the passive voice. So in walking, and just feeling the sensations, I began to frame it as sensations being known. Instead of I'm knowing the sensations, which right in the language creates the sense of self, changing to the passive voice, oh, sensations are being known. Let's just use the bell again. The sound being known. In that, we're not creating, in our very language, the sense of self. And then it's just experience being known. The, the great philosopher Wittgenstein, he said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. You know, language is powerful. Language conditions how we experience things. And so just a simple shift of language can you know, give us a different perspective. So I'd suggest if you're interested, when you do some walking, just say, it's very simple, you know, be very simple about it. Just walk and movement is being known. Well, the sensations of the movement are being known. And notice how effortlessly that knowing is happening. And it's not that anyone is doing it. It's being known quite spontaneously. Another way of cutting through the identification with knowing is very classic. This is classic Vipassana teachings. It's realizing that in every moment of experience, two things are happening. There's knowing and an object. There's knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, knowing of a thought, knowing of an emotion. And that our life, our experience, is really a pairwise progression. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. So when you're paying careful attention to the moment-to-moment -moment unfolding of experience, just take a look at that. See how in every moment there's what's being known, 
and the knowing of it. As our mind gets more and more tuned to that, we begin to see that the knowing itself is arising and passing along with the object. So we're seeing the impermanent nature of consciousness. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing away. So that also cuts through the identification. Another way. Three minutes. And this is found a lot in the Zen and Tibetan tradition. It, it's a it's a, a very powerful teaching. Of the instruction is actually to look for your mind. To look for the knowing. Okay, things are being known. Known by what? And you take a look. Can you find what is knowing it? And what's really interesting is that no matter how hard you look, there's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. So this is the great mystery of consciousness, of awareness. There's a book about the history of the number zero. And the title of the book is The, the, the Nothing That Is. And I saw the title of this book, and I just, that's, so I had to get the book. I could only understand, really, the first paragraph. <laughs> but that was enough. Uh, everything I needed was right in that. So in the opening lines of the book, it says, look at zero, and you see nothing. Look through it, and you see the world. And I thought, what a beautiful expression of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness. Look at zero, look at awareness, you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. So that's another way of ex exploration. Last story, famous story. This is a Zen encounter between Bodhidharma and the person who was going to eventually be his uh, disciple. Now, when you listen to this story, this the story has kind of a Zen witticism to it. So people often respond to the kind of the witty aspect. But it's actually profound. So suppress the laugh and really... You could get enlightened listening to this. So. Okay, so this disciple, Bodhidharma, you know, he's the one who brought Buddhism from India to China. Very kind of fierce teacher. He's sitting in his cave, supposedly for nine years, facing a wall. This guy comes very upset, suffering a lot, you know, really seeking. And he just entreats Bodhidharma, you know, please help me pacify my mind. And at first, Bodhidharma is just ignoring him, but finally, he comes out and engages. And the guy says, you know, I've been suffering tremendously. And, and you know, this was deep, deep, profound. Uh, he says, please, please pacify me. Please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma says, show me your mind, present me your mind. And this person says, I've looked for it everywhere, and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. 
that is an amazing teaching, which actually can be applied. I, and I've done this even just on going for a walk, you know, and if my mind is, you know, and caught up in something and, you know, a little disturbed. And I'll just remember that, that little exchange, look for the mind, there's nothing to find. There, it's already pacified in the awareness that there's nothing to find. It's like that, that earlier teaching, no clinging, no agitation, nibbana. You know, and so this is a very direct way of just looking for the mind. And the not finding is the finding. So again, all of these are different approaches. Liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish this through seeing impermanence, through seeing and exploring those arenas where we actually do cling. It's through the direct experience of selflessness, that there's no one behind the process to whom it's happening, that what we call self is the process of change. And so I'll just conclude with one other teaching of the Buddha, where he said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever hears this has heard all the teachings. Whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. Whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. So this is what we're really doing here together. You know, we're, we're practicing for this level of understanding. I'll just close with a last little poem. <laughs> a, la- a last little poem. <laughs> this is this is such a great little poem. <laughs> this is from Tejitsu, who was the abbess of a Zen monastery, nunnery, uh, 18th century. So this is from her writings. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind, and let go and fell into the midst of everything. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. 